let's talk about an incredibly complex machine that we've taken for granted for hundreds of years. You might even have one in your house. First, you press a button. This button is attached to a long piece of wood that itself is a weighted lever. This lever activates something called a whippin. When activated itself, the whippin turns a repetition lever, a jack, that supports said lever, an upward striking hammer and a damper, that raises when the button is pressed and let down again as it is released. Not sounding familiar yet? This machine has been exquisitely crafted for centuries, poured over, and applauded when operated exactly right. People have used this machine to create some of the most celebrated pieces of art in the world. This machine is the piano. The piano as a thing, not necessarily as a musical instrument, is so incredibly complex that when you take all the moving parts into account, the artist or the player is completely removed from the actual making of the sound. In comparison to the violin or singing, a piano player is effectively pushing buttons, or inputting data, in a way that makes the output pleasant to the ear. As soon as a musician puts an instrument between themselves and the actual music being played, the musician is no longer actually creating music with their flesh and bones. They're using a machine to create music. Now, we've become more and more open to this idea over the past 40 years or so. In the mid-70s, DJs started looping disco drum beats on turntables, which became an early form of sampling. Suddenly, the actual expression of music was two or three more steps removed from the actual creation of sound. Someone played the drums, and sometimes bass, which were then recorded, mixed, mastered, and sold via a record. A DJ bought two copies of this record, and looped them ad infinitum and mixed them together with other similar beats. Of course, there is musical creativity and talent here. And there's a reason not everyone can DJ. Naturally, by now we consider this genuine music, but at the time, this was by some dismissed as a cheap trick. Something that was akin to stealing. Why don't they just play their own instruments? Can't they think up any of their own songs or material? If this music already exists, is this really new music? Today, there's a group of musicians slash computer scientists who are creating brand new kinds of machines. And they're using this knowledge of musical therapy, neural networks, and modern computing to input data and develop brand new sounds that might differ from the methods that we're familiar with but are no less relevant to the way we create and understand music as an art form. Now it's further separation from the physical creation of music, but is no less relevant than the piano or a set of turntables per se. Pathos is a communication technique that appeals to the emotion of the audience. It's evocative, touching on something unique and intuitive. So, can a few lines of code, an AI, a machine learning algorithm, master the communication of human emotion and evoke pathos? So much of music is based on creating something to make us feel. How does artificial intelligence fit within such an inherently human craft? I want to say what does the future look like, but what does the future sound like? I'm Laura McInnes-Ray, and you're listening to Beneath the Rhythm, an RX Music podcast. In this episode, we wanted to explore the future of new music when it comes to the machines that we use to create these sounds. To help us on this journey, we spoke to Sagiv Orr, 
professor at Dalhousie University and a research faculty member at the Vector Institute, and Ace Piva, executive director at Over the Bridge, a nonprofit organization that provides counseling services to help musicians with addiction and mental health. Ace recently brought attention to his cause by working alongside the Lost Tapes of the 27 Club, a campaign project that used AI to create new songs by well-known deceased artists. I'm Ace Piva, and I am the executive director of Over the Bridge. We have been exploring um, the wonderful world of AI in music. This is a developing field, and we were just very excited to find different projects who've utilized this or developed interesting projects along the way. As a founding partner of Over the Bridge, could you tell us a little bit more about what your, your day-to-day looks like for uh, starting such a great initiative? Yeah, uh, my personal backstory is I started off as a drummer growing up in Hamilton. uh, As I played in numerous bands for about 20 years, I was always sort of like the manager, tour manager, you know, after show driver, the DD of the night. As bands grew up, some band members want to get real jobs and being a drummer, sort of got sick and tired of having to rely on the singer-songwriters to always provide my, my own personal income, you know. Sometimes there's a show and then someone doesn't want want to pay the budget. So first thing to go is the drummer and they go acoustic, right? So through all the skills I learned as being like the manager go-to guy, you know, was a bit of tour management. Uh, And luckily enough, while I was in this transitional time of my life, there happened to be a tour manager school that, that was in Hamilton at the time. And it was put together by a group of managers who were uh, managing the Pixies and the Spice Girls at the time in that office in Hamilton and one in London, UK. And when I finished that program, uh, they're like, hey, we got an artist for you to to hit the road with. He's from the UK, but uh, you have to know that he struggles with some substance use disorder. So just be aware of that. It's like, okay, you know, good good to know. So we went out, uh, we did... uh, south by southwest then we went did a show at the viper room in la and the bands we're playing with at that particular show they're kind of known as the partiers and stuff like that because the artist wanted to party a little bit extra he wanted money coming out of out of the tour and i said well i can't give you that money he's like well it's you know we had a big argument and we almost had to throw down behind the viper room uh over money the manager calls me goes did you give it to him i go nope he's like all right good Good night. <laughs> went back to sleep. So, and then as the primary driver for a lot of smaller tours, you end up having these deep conversations with the musicians post-show, two, three o'clock in the morning. You're doing four, three, five-hour post-show drives. And that really get in into a lot of personal talks, a lot of conversation about a lack of work-life balance. You're, the, you're either on the road all the time or on the road all the time. There's no real healthy balance there you know, uh, amongst a lot of different other topics. But I was out with one particular artist where he was three years into recovery and uh, he had relapsed about a week and a half into a six-week tour and the whole thing turned into a mess. That really influenced me thinking like, what am I, what could I have done to help this artist out more? You know, I told management, I told the agents, they really didn't seem to care as long as we got on stage and we got paid, but that was the priority. So after that tour, it took me a little bit of time because I didn't know what direction to go in, but I knew I wanted to learn something to a better support of that artist. Uh, I came to the conclusion that I'd go back to school, become an addictions counselor. My goal at that point was to be a tour manager uh, addictions recovery coach. However, through that experience of working with these guys who just got out of jail at these programs, I, I learned that no matter what I do, the person really needs to want to make a change. But also, they do get influenced by their peers because I'm dealing with the guys who, who was just getting out of jail. They didn't trust me. They trusted the guys who they'd been in jail with. I'd often get the, oh, you're the counselor? Go F yourself, uh, because I wasn't one of them. But where the work really did happen was between them. You know, all I did was I provided a space for people to talk, 
and I provided a place where they could create peer support because they already trusted each other and they would see how well one guy's doing and they would basically bounce ideas and work with each other. And my job was to keep everything, the conversation, you know, on, on target and not get sidetracked too often. With that experience, I was like, man, the music industry really needs a community like this. So uh, I started up a Facebook group just for musicians and people of the music industry. After a couple of weeks, we had a couple hundred members. It really grew fairly quick. And someone suggested, oh, you should make this into a nonprofit. I was asking a lot of people a lot of questions. I was getting the door shut on me a lot, but I just kept going. And now that group is over 1,200 members strong. We collaborate with different mental health people, you know, uh, counselors, therapists, and such uh, mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to answer some of the harder questions that people may have, as well as, you know, really rely on each other's peer support and experience. And yeah, and that's where over, over the bridge kind of started and, and came to be. And at, and at this point, you know, we're a Canadian nonprofit changing as well as having the conversation about mental health and recovery in the music community whilst providing uh, a safe space uh, support so our members can thrive. So, mm -hmm. you know, and so that's the, the, the short story. <laughs> of no, of course. <laughs> I mean, you you got to know where you came from to uh, better understand the present, right? Um, right? So you, so over the bridge founded in 2017, I wanted to bring up the lost tapes of the 27 club. How, oh, yeah. how did we get to, I think 2021? So a couple, a few years later, um, and your not-for-profit is now working with um, Magenta, Google's Google's AI. And how did you birth the idea of, uh, you know, you and your your colleagues to extend the idea of the Twenty Seven Club and connect that to artificial intelligence? You can explain well, better. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, I would love to take the credit for that. But we were approached by uh, a PR company called Rethink Canada. They're a large PR company, and they had already started the project. Uh, they, they were already midway through creating the songs. And basically, instead of putting it out just themselves and be like, hey, here's a bunch of AI music, they really wanted to have a message behind them because they knew that it, it would be more impactful that way. And although creating these songs was super cool, if it, it and they sound pretty good, but if you listen to it, the music doesn't sound perfect. And the reason why that is, is because no matter how good technology gets, it's never going to replace the real artist, you know, and we really, to get on this project, we really did struggle uh, a, a little bit because we needed to make sure that the the message that, that came out was that we need to keep our artists safe now before it's too late, mm -hmm. you know, because like the, the artists that uh, were a part of it, you know, the members of the 27 club, it was, it, it took some bravery to do it because, you know, the artists that, that we were, you know, trying to copy, uh, you know, there's legal ramifications, there's all this other stuff, but more importantly mm -hmm. than any of that, it truly, the message that we wanted to get out was that, we need to take care of the artist now before it's too late. Yeah. So, in, but to bring, you know, the sensitivity to the issue, um, I thought it was, it's an interesting project for, I mean, many reasons, but the juxtaposition of using technology coupled with the human spirit, basically. Right. And sort of trying to perpetuate, you know, how symbolic that is to take care of now, build sustainable habits now um, so that we can keep human expression going and with the aid of AI make something interesting, but it we're still at the heart of it. Keep the human spirit element alive in there. I was curious in, in your experience as, you know, a musician and obviously um, working in addiction counseling, I guess your experience working with music, do you see this message becoming bigger? Do you see the awareness aspect or the reception of this kind of getting where it needs to be or an improvement? Well, well, the reception that we got really was was a mixed bag. Like we, we had some people who downright 
didn't like it. And I, I could see their point. People were accusing us of, of trying to create new music and they're trying to think that we we got money out of it and all that stuff. If you look at it, we didn't ask for any donations or anything like that because we did not want to make money off that project. You know, mm. it was a but we did get a lot of positive feedback from people, really getting what what we uh, what what we were hoping to get. If you go down the internet troll lines, yeah, sure. You know, th there's going to be a bunch of keyboard warriors out there and whatever, but you can't really pay those people much mind. But the people that uh, uh, were favorable for this project. They're super positive and they really enjoyed the message and it really brought the attention over the bridge needed globally at that mm -hmm. point. Uh, we were able to get over, I believe it was 1.7 or sorry, 1.3 billion social media interactions. Rolling Stone picked on it, picked up on it. Joe Rogan, Howard Stern, every big magazine it did bring up our community membership and that's kind of what we we're hoping for is just allow people that know that over the bridge is here to support them so with with your background and obviously working alongside um this rethink group and your colleagues did it open your eyes a little bit to artificial intelligence and just sort of the opportunities or the innovation it could could hold for music opportunities and things like that yeah, it, it, it definitely did. You know, AI, just starting up over the bridge, AI was never going to be a part of our, you know, a, a part of us. Uh, but now it is a part of our of our history. And there was a lot of wild things that was brought to our attention by people reaching out to us and trying to collaborate with us, uh, you know, from doing holograms and AI shows and and all this mm -hmm. stuff, and I, I personally didn't even know that uh, that that we're that far. I'm not surprised that we're that far. The, the world is moving at such a quick pace. But yeah, it definitely did bring a lot of more attention to me about what the AI community has to offer these days, and it's pretty wild. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself ever ever dipping your toes in that again, or? You know, if it, if it makes sense, you know, Over the Bridge is willing to sit down and and take a listen to any ideas as long as it makes sense towards our mission. Yeah, so so we would definitely at least consider it because it, it did us well, uh, you know, at least on the brand awareness, you know, and because of that brand awareness, we've been able to help additional musicians around the world, so... Do you see this therapeutics and AI and music working together in, in an interesting way? Or has, is that, mm. I feel like that's come to people's attention over recent years of way to manipulate music for better health. Well, it, I guess it all depends on whoever sort of pushing the buttons, what their intentions are. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Are, are, uh, in the output that they're trying to create, are they trying to create, you know, a, a pop sing single? Or are they trying to create the the most beneficial sort of meditation, re relaxation music? Uh, I, I think if they're doing the relax and, you know, meditation music, uh, I, I believe it could be very beneficial because brain waves are so sp specific. And uh, I think that there could be a number of uh, outputted music that could beneficial benefit someone's mental health. But if you're trying to do it for a, a pure profit, mm -hmm. you know, I'm writing the next pop single. You, yeah, you know. it kind of cheapens the experience when you look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I know there's one band out there who wrote like six or seven albums over the course of the pandemic. And then their last one, their eighth album, let's say, they took those first six, seven albums and let AI create their eighth album. And that was a really, uh, you know, I haven't gone to, I, I'm not a fan of that particular artist, so I'm not going to dive into it, but but I've heard it was a very interesting uh, pr project to, to be a part of, you know, just, it, it's a, it is a different creation method, you know, a different creating process as it would mm -hmm. be, you know, from the organic, hey, let's go into the jam space and make a lot of noise and, and see what comes of it compared to. 
stored it all in, in a computer, let the computer write it, and now you perform mm-hmm. it. So it's it's funny because it makes me think of the sort of the purists argument, which is probably some of the some of the reception you encountered in the lost tapes of the Twenty Seven Club. It's kind of like you know the people that are fighting for, you know, let's keep it just for the original artist and that's it. And I think of you know the recent craze of like. NFTs in art and kind of people just going head to head saying like, no, that doesn't count or that's not what real art is. Like, I think there's this discourse is going to continue heavily in the coming years as we sort of start to fight and work alongside technology. But I'm excited to see where it goes. (laughs) Yeah. You know, AI music is definitely not the way of the past because it wasn't available but i think as any new process it, it, it is an interesting process to and to, to sort of dive into and understand uh but that doesn't necessarily mean that the output of it is going to be beneficial like if someone were to come on say hey i created a new color in the color palette it's going to be a hot color to use over the next little while mm-hmm. uh, like like and everything's going to be whatever that color is once it sort of gets over its initial hype it's i, I guess we're we're still uh we, we just got to wait and see if it's going to stand up to the test of time you know like it's it, it's cool it's awesome that we can do it but in, in the long runs will we continue using it i'm not too sure you know a- mm-hmm. nfts I don't know a whole bunch about that, but it, it does sound like it's along the same lines of AI. You know, uh, you know, will it stand the test of time? We're, we're too early to to say. Mm-hmm. It, it's exciting for the now, you know, and it gets everyone going. And you know, there's a few people who are on board with, at the early stages who are championing it, saying, you know, this is the next wave of, of currency. Same with crypto and everything else. You know, until I can go and buy a loaf of bread with crypto, it's it, it's it's fun to pay attention to. But mm-hmm. uh, how much can you put into it if you can't buy a loaf of bread with it? So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, I want to thank you again for for joining us. Um, I'm very interested in in this cause. You know, being working in the music industry, um, what you're doing is very noble and very necessary. So. I'm happy to hear that this project brought more awareness and hopefully a stronger message um, to just to highlight how important it is to take care of yourself. Uh, my name is Sigiv Ur, and I'm a professor at Dalhousie University and a research faculty member at the Vector Institute. And I work on machine learning, in particular machine learning for audio um, computational creativity in music, speech, um, and a variety of other applications. So essentially, we yeah we're diving into AI and some prevalent projects we're seeing sort of um, on the horizon, especially with a focus on music. We, when we came across you know your profile, I thought you were an excellent candidate to sort of chat further and to get kind of a better understanding between how we can build connections between music and AI working in tandem. And especially as your background as a professional musician, as well as um, working in computer science and research. Um, I also saw that you worked in, I think, a research assistant with uh, Magenta and Google, and it, it caught my eye. And I would just love to know more about how you got into this field. Sure. Yeah, I guess I've, I've always done both things in parallel. So I've worked in computer science and I've worked as a musician for a really long time. I didn't do any research on music related stuff. I was working in machine learning and I've had a long, a long-term attraction repulsion relationship to the idea of combining music and AI or music and machine learning. I still have an attraction repulsion relationship to it. The repulsion never went away, but the attraction grew even stronger. I just figured if I, I might as well try it out. I'm doing both things anyway, um, and I was very curious to see. And things in the machine learning side had matured to a point where I was really curious to see what what could happen. Um, so I started 
trying to apply it. And then, yeah, I went to Google. I was working as a visiting research scientist at Magenta for a while, came back to Canada at Vector and Dalhousie. The uh, attraction and the repulsion in terms of the combining, I think the attraction to combining them was sort of natural in the sense that like both were big elements I had big interests in each of them individually, and I spent time and uh, very invested in each one. So, of course, part of me is like curious to, well, what happens if I work at something at the intersection? There, there's probably more parts to the attraction as well. The novelty of like just experimenting, like it's, some, it's something that that is new. It hasn't been done much. So like what happens when you start applying these things that haven't been applied in this area and building the idea of being able to build new kind of tools? Like what is that even, what will they look like? What might it mean? What could it do, right? So like there's sort of, it's actually kind of interesting. Like a lot of musicians I know are very technologically minded and technologically open and interested when they're a new, thing comes out, there's a lot of musicians who are very curious to try and play around with it. So some of it was that kind of curiosity as well. You know, the idea that, oh, if if we kind of have a system that can generate notes, like that can generate MIDI files, what else could, what what kind of MIDI files could it generate? I mean, there've been examples, even, even of that, just like black MIDI, where there's so much, there's so many notes that the score is just like completely black and the frequency, like the, the, the rate at which, I don't know if you've ever heard black MIDI music, but um, you kind of, it has, you start to get like in the wash of notes, you get other new sounds emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I think just curiosity in those directions. Um, in terms of the repulsion, I think that's a more interesting one and also harder to articulate for me. And I think that the fact that it's hard to articulate is a signal in itself. Like the like, there are certain things that are hard to articulate about music, for example. If, if they weren't, it wouldn't be music. Like you could have mm-hmm. just said it all, but you can't mm-hmm. say it all. You, you actually have to sometimes just hear it. You always have to hear it. And it's not the same as talking about it. And so applying some other kind of descriptive vocabulary that's numerical or quantitative, like a probabilistic framework of some sort applied to music, there's something about it that feels like, but what about these parts that you can't articulate? Limiting? Yeah, and in a sense, maybe limiting. Or or sometimes I found my, my own approach to music as a musician tends to be, has had at least it sometimes is, is quite visceral. So that part of me is not necessarily interested in adding a lot of cognitive layers. I mean, there is a certain amount, I, I also will sometimes kind of analyze things and play things in certain ways with a, a backdrop of an analytical approach too. But I did. I think I didn't like, yeah, it's a hard question in some ways to, to articulate. I didn't like forcing myself into a certain type of analytical thinking when making music or applying a certain kind of analytical thinking to to music and i still don't but i also find do find it interesting at the same time so that kind of Mm -hmm. touches on it it's yeah as much as i can for now at least Mm -hmm. and i'll preface this with i don't i don't have a background in computer science i have a lot of friends that do and i'm very fascinated by how their brain works is it similar to learning kind of like a a program or something where you know how it works, something where you're learning a specific equation to get it to do, you know, A plus B equals C to get it to do something, whereas it doesn't, music doesn't feel applicable to that. So it feels almost um, paradoxical to use something that might be machine-based to create something artistic where maybe you don't necessarily have an outcome in mind. Does that make sense? Mental approach to telling a story, for example, contradictions are sort of, for, can, can be forgivable in a certain way. Like it, it's okay if not everything, like you, on one hand, you do want things to make sense on a certain level, but it, it's also okay on, if on some levels there appear to be contradictions, we can hold them, right? I mean, 
our dreams, we don't stop having a dream the moment there was a contradiction. It was like, oh my God, this can't be real because there's a contradiction. We just keep dreaming, right? We, we're mm -hmm. able to contain that. And I think that's a valuable and important thing actually in, in human self-expression. And it's mm -hmm. less clear what to do with that in a computational framework. The relationship to ambiguity also is, is different, I think. I find in music, there's storytelling too, or, you know, in expression, there's a, an interesting role for ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And that too is, doesn't always find itself in sort of a, a more logical framework where you're trying to say things are either this or that. So if, if we were to turn this on its head and say you were to speak to another musician who might be of a more traditional mindset that might not be as in tune with the kind of ways that AI could aid in working in music, like whether that's helping with the musicality or just helping to brainstorm and maybe they're not aware of the opportunities that are possible there. What's kind of like a an approach or an argument you have for people not to shut down working with AI in music instead of fighting it? Yeah, cool. So I think there's there's nothing to be scared of in that one thing that it can do. So if, if you train a system on a lot of musical data, then part of what it'll do is it might reflect back some of the things that are in that data. And that's kind of an interesting thing. If you think about all kinds of technological innovations that have been done for either for music already, right, all kinds of effects, um, as just one example, you can think about video editing too. You can, there's so many technological innovations that we use all the time that we've realized, oh, these are, these, these just add to the vocabulary, right? And mm -hmm. the, the hard thing is just learning to use them effectively. So often I think when there's a new tool or a new instrument, a new device, then there's a lot of kind of gimmick use of it. Like, oh, let's press the button over and over and over and, and see the, all the cool things it does. And then that does, I think, wear away after a while. And I think it's interesting to see what's what's left afterwards. What what once we've gotten that out of our system, what are the interesting uses that we can find for it? And for sure, it's mm -hmm. it can do things that couldn't be done before. It can process volumes of data that couldn't be processed before all at, all at once. Anyway, there's a few different ways that I can think of. So there's you can apply AI to musical contexts in terms of generating notes, like in a MIDI, for example. So I've done some work on that where we have a system that you, you provide it with some input or not, and it will generate a sequence of notes. And then you can do what you want with those notes. So in some of the music to speech demos that my brother, Danny, who's uh, an amazing musician, he generated, he used his speech to and our system to generate a bunch of uh, musical sequences. And then he took those and orchestrated them essentially and turned them into pieces. They came from voice, like they came from sort of vocal stuff. So I think that that was, we used it in a cool way as, a, as an interesting tool. I think one of the hard things also, um, so this is now flipping back in the, uh, to the other side of it, is in general, I think, as humans, I, I guess, I don't know, as, as what as people, technology, one of the tricky things about using a lot of technology is that it's hard, it's hard to remember to keep breathing, right? It, it never, it doesn't draw us into our own bodies often. You know, even if a, an instrument like a piano, which is far removed from voice, right? Like a piano player will often, when they're learning, they'll imitate a violinist or a sing or, or a violinist and the violinist is imitating a singer in terms of like, how are they phrasing? Where's the phrasing? Where's the source of the phrasing? And it's coming from this sort of, at this instinct level. And piano is already very indirect. Like you press a button and then that goes through a series of like 10 other things that get pressed until eventually a string vibrates. And that already distances us. And so the struggle even for a pianist is to keep breathing in a way. And so now you add even more layers of indirection of technology and it's a new it's a new level of challenge for people to stay grounded in a way 
as they're using this and not, not get kind of know where they are in the in in all of this as well i don't think and i think that's not a bad thing like as long as we're aware that that challenge is in front of us and we rise to it and we try it we do what we can to i hadn't thought of it that way to be cognizant of being removed doesn't have to be a bad thing but you have to you definitely do have to change your outlook on how you're actually creating in some other conversations that I've had with uh, musicians and people working in the field, a lot of people bring up um, the element of like stripping, that AI strips the human creativity out of it or the human spirit out of a creative project. And that's obviously a very valid concern. I think it is also a very rigid way of looking at it. In future, what can you think of some ways that this might help us in the industry that might become a little more mainstream or a little more accepted? The ways ways that AI could maybe help us in uh, orchestra or in entertainment creating and things like that. I think that there's there's plenty of room to use AI and machine learning systems to build tools that will be very useful and fun and interesting. And that doesn't have to be at the expense of human creativity at all. I think that it makes sense that to build these tools, a first step sometimes is to see, is kind of to build these intermediate things that may be appear like they're trying to create music. So some of the, in some of the stuff that I'm doing, I've definitely spent time on and will continue to spend time on building some systems where it seems like the system is trying to generate music. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that that is the end goal for me at all. It's more like if I want a really smart tool, then one thing that that tool needs to be able to do would be to generate certain kinds of music under certain directions if asked. And then that's just like one, it's like one criteria. And if it can do that, then I can then take that and put that into sort of another box, so to speak, where it's really purely, it only has this purpose of being a tool that somebody will use. Kind of at your own discretion. Yeah, yeah. So if you, you know, if you're, if you're, building a, a, an engine to drive a car that a person will drive, then it makes sense. As you're building it, you might at some point try to build a little thing that just like moves itself along the floor. Not because that's the thing you're trying to do. It's just like, okay, like you're testing things out. So I think that there's plenty, and, and a lot of the music researchers, music AI researchers uh, right now are, I think, quite aware that there's Eventually, it's going to be an, in, a very interactive system between humans who are controlling and doing something with an AI system. Anna Huang, who's at Magenta and has done stuff. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the researchers are all kind of interested in, in these, these dynamics and interactions. I wanted to ask you specifically about your inspiration working with your NUR IPS speech to music tool. So you and... I believe other colleagues uh, created this, and I, I just wanted to learn more about how that works, kind of bring yeah. the audience in on what, what that's about. Sure, yeah. So this was the speech music tool uh, started actually as, so a couple of my grad students were in a class together. It started as a course project. It turned into something that synthesized multiple projects that were all going on in my lab at the same time. So. Uh, Sri Harsha Dumpala is working on speech uh, analysis and mental health. Jason Dion is working on music generation. Chandramali Sastri is working on other uh, other aspects of machine learning. Sort of together, there's kind of came to this project that can we take the speech signals and extract the pitch contours of the speech, and then use those pitch contours to drive a music generation system and get a a melody out of it. 
the fun to have fun demo shows a kind of a few stages of how that works if 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 we listen to that so the first stage you hear the raw speech and then the next stage is what you hear kind of if you took every little pitch tracking moment of that raw speech signal and converted it to a piano note how that would sound and that would sound just like a flurry of notes going up and down the piano keyboard so that's not quite a usable melody yet and then we take that and we output from that um, we use machine learning system to output a more musical like melody that came based on those contours and then we passed that musical melody in some of the other demos, like the Moo Cow demo or the Thing One and Thing Two demo. We passed those to my brother, Danny, who then orchestrated all those melodic fragments and turned it into sort of like little 30 second excerpts of orchestrated music, if that makes sense. So it was still put together by a person and the little bits of it were originated with speech things that somebody actually just recorded their own voice saying and the ml system helped and some other speech processing tools just helped translate that speech into melodic material which was then taken by the composer and the orchestrator and arranger to get musical excerpts i guess what's the next step once you guys were able to reach that point like you you started with an inspiration and had a bunch of different brains put into making that make sense and actually execute and turn into music. What what do you think is the, like, what's the next step now that you know you can do that? We have lots of next steps uh, going on uh, in research in the lab right now. So uh, everybody's working on all kinds of next steps. So like I said, this, this project was sort of a convergence of multiple projects and all of those multiple projects are still going. Jason is continuing to work on more models for generating music. Sriharsha is continuing to work on actually using speech to detect depression levels for mental health. And we're looking very much at the musical elements of speech. So we're looking at things like the prosody, right? The, the up and down and the, and the tempo, not necessarily the words being said, but, mm -hmm. but how things are being said. And I'm continuing to work also with Danny on what other tools we can build and how how we can kind of what kind of interactions we can have between machine learning systems and and musicians is it possible that this just made me think of in a more vocal approach like for a singer or vocalist could you use that kind of project to predict maybe from my speaking voice would you be able to predict what my singing voice would sound like like is that something that could be interesting just using the data that you have, being able to sort of see where, does that make sense? Like yeah, seeing how sense. a voice can react and sort of be yeah. challenged I, if. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, and I think there's been, I can't remember the names of the authors, but there has been some work definitely on generating singing voices and controlling sort of synthetic singing, just as there's controlling synthetic speech. That is indeed relevant. Something you mentioned that may, that's just an interesting factor in all of this is you said using the, the data you have or uh, something along those lines. And it's worth kind of knowing or noting that the, the role of data in machine learning is enormous. It's everything that it does, it's doing based on some data set. Everything, a lot of the thinking in a research group like oh could we do this or could we not do this can we do can we try that a lot of that depends at the moment at least on exactly what data is it that we do have so if we had only data of people speaking then there's no way we could easily try to train a model to learn to sing because we don't have any examples of it if we had lots of examples i'm, I'm if we had lots of examples of the same person, here's how they sound when they speak and here's how they sound when they sing, then that might be the kind of data that would allow building a model that learns to translate or learns to predict. This brings up something really important as well, which is when we're tra training machine learning models on large musical data sets, and I don't have answers for this, but when, we're, when, when people are doing that, the question of ownership is really pretty big and unclear 
I think. It's not clear how to manage that and how to manage that in the future as more models get trained on larger data sets. Because they're trained on the data set, they're trained on stuff that somebody generated. They're trained on stuff that somebody created, somebody produced. And so it's yeah. not clear what, you know, when the model then produces something or generates something, then what, how much ownership do the people have whose data this was trained on? That's a good point. I guess the, the legalities will have to come sort of with each breakthrough. They probably won't come uh, before they're needed. Yeah. In the music industry? <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully at least they will come in some fair way when they're needed. What are you personally most excited about after having a career in this and continuing it in um, research and teaching and mentoring? What are you specifically most excited about? I mean, I'm I'm pretty excited about all the things that are going on in my lab at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what, how those will develop, how, how that'll look when, when put into the hands of musicians. What kinds of things can we do with that? There's some tools that we're building that I know that like, there's a part, one of my barometers internally is as a musician, is there something that I wish I had? And so some of those are really hard to, they're kind of like far away still, but there are things like that, that we're, I think, slowly moving towards that would be like super cool, but baby steps. One of the most fascinating parts about even just digging into this topic when we decide to do an episode on this and speaking to different personalities in the field is that there are a bunch of unknowns and that kind of might make it the most interesting thing ever. Um, I think that plays in our in our favor as as listeners, musicians, researchers. Um, the unknowns make it exciting, challenging, but still significant, if you will. Yeah, I guess I'm excited when we talked earlier about the challenge, like the challenges for human users. So, you know, stay connected when you're using a new technology, how to kind of stay how to stay grounded when you're using it and not get sucked into the the tricks that that piece of technology can do i'm also excited and i it's not something that i'm i know how to navigate necessarily but i'm excited for people to like how that progress will look like we tell our kids sometimes we you know try to minimize we know that screen time is not great for them and minimize their screen time but as a society we're still figuring all this out ourselves and figuring out how to minimize our own sucked inness to certain kinds of things. And so we might be able to do more interesting things once we get a grip on some of those aspects of how how we approach tools without getting without getting mm -hmm. kind of too uh, charmed by by certain elements of them. Yeah, I think definitely what you said earlier about kind of once the almost like the Gartner hype cycle sort of settles. And then we realize how relevant these tools can be and which ones are the most uh, applicable to like a mainstream use and things like that. I, I think you're right about it. Not necessarily presenting the, the challenges right away. We're still very much still trying to figure out where those lay. Yeah, we're super early in the cycle, I think. So if you think like a musical instrument, like a piano, like it, it's not like somebody sat down one day and invented the piano, right? It it iterated over many generations and it gradually changed. And then, and it doesn't change like even after a week or even after a year, because like it takes more than a year even to learn to play the thing. You need somebody to really spend thousands of hours learning how to how to truly play it. And then you start to see, oh, maybe we can tweak it this way or that way. And we are so early in these things and they keep changing very fast. They're changing faster than the rate at which people can learn to use them. And for now that's okay, but at some point things will might stabilize. That I'm excited for that, for like once we start to see, and, and piano, the piano is a great example because it has like embodies a lot of these little challenges. Like it's an easy instrument to just noodle at, right? Mm -hmm. Because you press it, Violin is not easy to noodle. You do this and you just get like a squeaky, cracky sound, right? Not everything is a note. <laughs> yes, not everything is a note, exactly. 
And with a piano, everything is a note. You just press a button, you get a note. Yep. So it's easy to detach yourself from what you're playing. With singing, it's harder to noodle. You start to sing, it's like, ah, uh-uh. like your, your voice is suddenly out there and you've just exposed something. And with piano, you haven't necessarily, right? You just, you're just press, pressing buttons and something else is causing the note. So how to keep those levels of connection. It, so I guess I'm excited to see how, how people figure out how to do that with technology as well. I am really excited about where the rest of your endeavors and project goes because I'm very invested in this field. I, Even just in this conversation and thinking about things a little differently, I'm not a professional musician, but it's a massive part of my life in the way that I, the way I think. So I'm really excited to see where, how this becomes applicable um, and different creative ways we can, we can use it and not fight technology. COVID has definitely allowed us to, uh, bring attention to ourselves it's it's forced us to look inwards it's given a, given a lot of people the time to look inwards and do the inward work we're hoping that once all this stuff is over we'll be in a better place as a society we'll be able you know there's going to be need a lot of changes within the workplace you know so, so we're able to make space for mental health safety. But I do see that happening. I see a lot of people working really hard to create, you know, new protocols and stuff like that. So our mental health is taken care of. A huge thanks goes out to Sakiv Or and Ace Piva for lending their thoughts and insight. This program was produced by Craig Clemens, Regan McDonnell, and myself. Graphics by Andre Grant. I'm your host, Laura McInnes-Ray. If you enjoyed the show or have a project you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you at podcasts at rxmusic.com. You've been listening to Beneath the Rhythm, an RX Music podcast. <laughs>